Well, last week we uh, finished our uh, study on the big picture, uh, but we will see that God's plan for man, his big picture, still continues uh, on into the book of Acts. Um, in God's scheme of things, in Acts uh, chapter 2, uh, we saw uh, Pentecost and, of course, Peter uh, preaching uh, that first uh, sermon uh, where 3,000 were saved and the Holy Ghost uh, came upon them and uh, they were filled with the Spirit. And we talked about the Holy Spirit last week how now things had changed. The Spirit now indwells believers instead of, as we saw in the Old Testament, just coming upon a person temporarily to enable them to do the work. But as believers, the Holy Spirit resides and dwells within us now. At the moment of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. Well, we continued on through the book of Acts last week and uh, got to uh, uh, chapter 6. And in chapter uh, 6, that's where we see Stephen uh, preaching, uh, being charged with uh, blasphemy, and then, of course, uh, uh, winding up being stoned because of his faith. Uh, the first martyr we have recorded uh, in the book of Acts, in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Then we got on over to uh, uh, chapter uh, 8 last week, and uh, we saw there uh, at, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, we saw there where uh, uh, Philip, or, or in chapter 8, Philip actually is the first evangelist that's mentioned uh, in uh, the New Testament in the book of Acts. So those are significant events that took place uh, in the book of Acts, those early chapters that were part of God's big picture. Well, uh, after having been introduced to Stephen and Philip last week, uh, Today, uh, we're going to begin a series on the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And we'll uh, be in this study through the book of Acts for most of uh, this spring, um, at least until late spring, uh, when we uh, begin another series and then get ready for the summer. But we're going to spend a few weeks talking about the Apostle Paul, especially as it relates to his missionary journeys. You know, Paul took three missionary uh, journeys, and we'll look at each one of them uh, uh, in detail, uh, to some degree at least, most of them in, in detail. But he took three missionary journeys. That spanned a time period of about ten years. And uh, we'll dig deep into each one of those uh, in the coming days and the Wednesdays ahead, and hopefully we can be encouraged and blessed and hopefully even challenged somewhat. Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we're uh, introduced to Saul of Tarsus in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 58. If you would uh, turn there with me, we'll begin... Uh, with Saul of Tarsus, 758. Stephen is being stoned. And verse 58 says, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus is introduced to us for the first time here in in this verse, simply called a young man at whose feet those brutal murderers of Stephen laid down some of their garments. They took off some of their outer garments so that they would be unrestrained in stoning Stephen. And there was a young man there named Saul, and they laid their garments down at his feet. Verse 59 says, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Sleep is a way of saying he he died. But then verse 1 of chapter 8 gives us a little bit of insight into this young man named Saul. Saul was consenting unto his death. What that means is that he was in hearty agreement with killing Stephen. No question about it. He relished in that thought. He enjoyed it. Stephen is being stoned. This man Saul sees Stephen die a horrible, brutal death. And he's consenting unto his death. He's in hearty agreement with what those people were doing. Well, what about this man Saul? Let's look in depth for a few minutes at at this young man who was consenting and who heartily supported the stoning of Stephen. Well, we know that he was Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus, the city of Tarsus. Uh, That was no little out-of-the-way kind of uh, hick town. Tarsus was actually uh, a busy, thriving metropolis and, and it was a city of diverse culture and, and even international commerce. Now, if you, have, if you have a Bible, can't do this, I don't think, on an electronic one, but if you have a Bible, flip to that real pretty colored section of maps in the back. You know how I feel about maps, right? I think they're great. Those maps, those maps in the back of your Bible, can I just tell you that I don't think they put those colored maps in, in, in your Bible. They don't include those pages just so they can charge you more for the Bible when you buy it. They're, they're there for, for a reason. And if you have a colored Bible uh, section in, in the back of your Bible, there's probably one there that is a map of the journeys of Paul. If you want to turn there, let's see if we can find where Tarsus is. If you see a map that is the journeys of Paul, you'll see that big body of water that's the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. 
Now put your finger on that Mediterranean Sea and move it all the way to the right until you come to the coastline there. Are you with me? Now, follow that coastline directly north. And where that coastline begins to run east and west, move your finger just a little bit to the left, and you might find the city of Tarsus. Do you see it? That's where, that's where Saul was from. That's his hometown. He was Saul of Tarsus. Now, some interesting things about the city of Tarsus that are going to be very important, and we'll find out as we go along through the book of Acts, that this is going to actually be in the vicinity of some of the areas where Paul ministers and travels on one, at least, uh, and in some cases, two of his missionary journeys. He's going to actually minister in that city and some cities nearby. But it was a, it was a city that was near a, a seaport. It became a, a popular trade route for caravans uh, carrying their goods from the Orient in the east all the way back to the city of Rome in the west. Now, if your maps are like mine, you'll see there, right, right around Tar Tarsus, there is a mountain range. That's the province of Cilicia, and that mountain range had some passageways through those mountains just above the city of Tarsus. That's why it was such a desirable trade route, because they could pass by Taurus and go right through a number of these narrow passages that were known as the Cilician Gates. So Tarsus was a very prominent city that this Saul, this young man Saul, was from. Well, Saul's parents were actually Pharisees. Well, they were members of the Jewish party that was the most passionate about Jewish nationalism and about strict, strict obedience to the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, they were steadfast, they were unmovable, they were uncompromising in their defense of Jewish law and in their emphasis to stay compliant with it. These were, these were super religious people. That was the family into which Saul was born. Well, Jewish law prescribed that young boys at age five begin learning the Scriptures. It was typical when a young boy got to be about the age of 10 that not only would he be pretty well versed in the Scriptures, but he would also begin at about age 10 learning, learning about the study of Jewish law, the Jewish law and what was required of him. Well, and then, as was uh, typical of adolescent uh, Pharisees, by the time Saul reached the age of about 13, he would have been pretty well educated. 
He would have been educated in Jewish history. He would have been well-educated in the literature of the Psalms. He would have known a lot about the prophets. And he probably would be pretty well-versed already in the Latin language. At about the age 13, a young Jewish boy would become a bar mitzvah. You ever heard of a bar mitzvah? Well, bar mitzvah is a young adolescent uh, teenage uh, boy where he actually, at that point, bar mitzvah means son of commandment. And, and he was now... He was now grounded in not only the Scriptures, not only in Jewish law, but if he was a promising young man, he was going to be selected to go into a Jewish school under the tutelage of a rabbi. So here we have this young boy, Saul, probably at about age 13. This gifted little Pharisee boy would have been sent by sea from that city of Tarsus down to Palestine, probably the city of Jerusalem, where for the next five or six years he would be schooled and sit at the feet of scholars and rabbis like Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a supreme teacher of the Jewish law. Gamaliel was one of the greatest rabbis of the first century. And we'll see that Paul had the opportunity to sit at his feet. From Gamaliel, Saul would have learned the sacred scriptures. Gamaliel would have taught him how to expound the scriptures, how to debate how to defend the Scriptures and continue his learning of Jewish law and how it applied to life. So by the time Saul, even at this age where we're first introduced to him, Saul would have been a highly educated Pharisee. He would have had mastery of three languages, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, which is the language of Judea, and it's a, it's a derivative of Hebrew. So, this was no slackard. This was a brilliant young man. Well, Saul eventually became a success in the religious courts of Jerusalem, and he became a leading member of the city's religious establishment. You remember, since, since the uh, day of Pentecost, religious activity... Uh, the preaching of the gospel abounded, and there many people were being saved and converted. And as a result of that, the long-standing religious establishment of which this Saul was now a part was being threatened. These were obviously times when drastic action had to take place on a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts is often called the council. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish supreme court of the time. Multiple attempts were made to silence these preachers of the gospel. That's why Stephen was stoned. The religious establishment did not want 
this to take place. Because every convert to Christianity was one less member of Jewish society. And that's why Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. He was a threat to the Jewish establishments. Well, they'd made multiple attempts, attempts to silence these guys. They even killed Stephen, but they proved to be uh, unsuccessful at times. And they thought, put him in jail, put him in prison, incarcerate him. That'll be the, that, that'll be the thing that'll stop him. But even that proved to be unsuccessful. Look at chapter 5 of Acts. Look back at chapter 5, verse 17 of the book of Acts. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. You see, they had the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and these were Sadducees. So not only do the Pharisees hate these converts to Christianity, but now we see that the Sadducees do also. And were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Now look at verse 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. The angel of the Lord unlocked the prison doors, freed the apostles, then locked the entire place up again. When the officers went to the jail, they found all the gates and doors were locked. They found all the guards in their places. But when they went inside, guess what they found? No prisoners. You see, you see the lesson for us is this. The work of God might be hindered it might temporarily be halted, but it's not going to be stopped permanently. It will not happen. Will you think about that? Will you think about that in your life, in your ministry, in your service to the Lord? You might have a setback for a little while, but friends, if it's of God, it is going to continue. It's quite likely that Saul of Tarsus was in that group, the Sanhedrin, when he got that report. And for the religious establishment, things are quickly getting out of control. 
This is spreading like wildfire, and there's no way that they're able to stop it. And again, I would say, if it is of the Lord, it will continue. There might be a minor bump in the road. There might be a minor setback. It might require some drastic action on the part of the Lord, but He will honor your service if you will be faithful to Him. The angel said, you guys get up, get up and go, go preach in the, in the temple. Well, they got up out of the prison. They left. The Lord locked that prison back up and they were gone. Anger and frustration, no doubt, began to consume Saul and these other religious leaders. Look at verse 24 of chapter 5. When the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. <laughs> Now, to make matters even worse, another messenger comes running to him in verse 25 with even a more astonishing report. Look at this, verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, this calls for emergency action on the part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. So what do they do? Verse 26, Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Saul heard Peter say that to the Sanhedrin. What do you think was his reaction? What could he possibly have been thinking as he listened intently to Peter give that testimony? You see, the first, <laughs> the first sermon that Peter preached after Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. This second sermon, 
He's speaking to 71 people who can't stand him. What do you think Saul could have been thinking that day when he heard that testimony from Peter? This young, highly educated Pharisee named Saul was listening to an ignorant fisherman named Peter talking about a now-dead Jesus who claimed to be God. What do you think was going through Saul's mind? Do you think he got angry? Do you think maybe he was even enraged? I don't know. Do you think maybe he was laughing mockingly? Or maybe he was even laughing uncontrollably? I don't know. Maybe he was just silent as he looked upon this poor, pitiful character who would believe something that outrageous. You know, it may have been at that very point, at that very time, when Saul of Tarsus began putting together in his mind the strategy that he was going to use to kill as many of these Christians as he possibly could. Little did he know that in the not-too-distant future, this ignorant fisherman that he was listening to was going to be his co-laborer in establishing churches. Don't we serve a great God? Why? Saul of Tarsus. But before Saul or any of the other members of the Sanhedrin uh, could do anything, before they could even respond, God intervenes in another surprising turn of events. Gamaliel. Saul's highly respected teacher, mentor, and now friend and colleague stands to his feet. Verse 34. Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Gamaliel, the highly respected, greatest scholar and rabbi of the first century, stands up in that council of 71 Supreme Court members, and he says, give these guys a little room. Verse 35, he said unto them, now he turns and speaks to the other members of the council, the Sanhedrin, and he says, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, 
And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. But now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. This was Gamaliel. Saul had studied under this man during his schooling in Jerusalem. He'd sat at this man's feet during his formal training in all the Jewish law. And now, in a flurry of emotions and, and in flaring tempers and in the midst of impulsive and irrational thinking, here comes this calm voice of reason. This voice of Gamaliel, a wise, experienced teacher. I wonder if Saul could believe his ears. He could not believe what he was hearing coming from the mouth of this man for whom he had such utmost respect. How could the Sanhedrin even consider such a thing? How could they even consider sparing the lives of these infidels? But according to verse 40, that's exactly what they did. Again, we see God's hand at work. Do you realize that at this moment, because of the wise counsel of Gamaliel, Peter's life was spared? Do you know that Sanhedrin that day could just as easily have had him stoned? Saul and the rest of the council could have had Peter stoned along with a whole host of others. But because of the wisdom of Gamaliel, God graciously preserved the life of Peter, who's going to play a strategic part in the rest of the book of Acts. I think we need to keep that in mind when we feel hopeless, when feel, we feel like things are out of control, God might be working in somebody that you least expect in fulfilling His will for your life. Whoever would have thought that Gamaliel would be an ally and not an enemy? Only could God orchestrate circumstances like that. Only could God move in a man's heart to cause him to give that wise advice and save the life of the Apostle Peter. Wisely, the religious leaders took Gamaliel's advice. They ordered the apostles to be beaten and silenced as a warning to others. Well, such was the life of Saul of Tarsus. He experienced it. He saw it. 
He saw all of that firsthanded. But you know, here's the miracle. No amount of sin, no amount of hatred for the gospel, no amount of spiritual blindness, no amount of physical brutality is beyond the pale of God's grace. You know how I know that and why? Because in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, we witness one of the most amazing and remarkable conversions in all of Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Saul was consenting unto his death. Great persecution ensued. And look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Paul, at this point, he's still Saul, is right in the middle of it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus, at the beginning of chapter 9, is on a murderous rampage toward the city of Damascus. Damascus, if you want to look later back at that map we were talking about, find Damascus. It's, a, it's over a hundred miles north of Jerusalem. This was no small undertaking for Saul of Tarsus to go to Damascus. This wasn't just going up the road. This was a long journey. He was bound and determined to round up as many of these believers as he could, bring them bound back to Jerusalem to face trial and to face certain death. Breathing out threatenings. He knew that there were many of these converts, many of these Jewish traitors who had escaped and fled over a hundred miles from Jerusalem for safety. And he knew that they had sought refuge in that city of Damascus. And he also knew there were a lot of them there. And if he went there, it would be good hunting for Christians. So, Armed with letters of authorization from the high priest, his mission was underway. To capture believers, bring them back to Jerusalem to face certain death. But again, to God be the glory. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly... There shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, 
and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Verse 5 says, it is difficult, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. A prick was an ox goad. It was, a, it, it was an expression of an image that rose from the practice of farmers who raised livestock and cattle. And they would have a long rod or a long pole that was sharp on one end. And they would use that sharp pointed stick or, or pole uh, to urge a stubborn cow or ox to get moving. Occasionally, occasionally the ox would kick. And you know what would happen? When that ox would kick, he would kick that pointed end of that stick and create more pain for himself. God had been goading Saul. And he'd been kicking back. We don't know how long. We don't know for sure what goads it may have been that God was using in Saul's life. I think there may be a a couple. There may be a few. Maybe there are some things that God had used as goads in Saul's life. You know, Saul was contemporary of Nicodemus. We don't know for sure, but it it, it is possible that he may have heard Jesus speak publicly at times. Do you think maybe one of those goads could have been the words of Jesus Himself? Either that He heard personally, or that He perhaps had heard one of His colleagues relate to Him? Maybe they were the very words of Jesus Himself that stuck in Saul's mind. Maybe in quiet moments, unbeknownst to anyone, he thought soberly about this one called Jesus. May have been some of the very words of the Savior Himself that rang in His mind and his conscience. Maybe. Perhaps there was another goad. Maybe Saul was never able to rid his mind of that mental picture of Stephen being stoned. Stephen died a a, a violent and brutal death, but he didn't scream. No record that he begged for mercy. He did not curse, as far as we know from Scripture, and he did not deny the Lord. He simply said, forgive them. Don't lay this to their count. Does that sound like the words of another? Forgive them. They know not what they do. Saul witnessed the death of Stephen. And I, and I have to believe that he never ridded his mind of that mental picture of Stephen dying as a martyr so graciously 
for his Lord and Savior. That may have been one of the goads that God used in Saul's life. Wonder if maybe another goad would have been the courage of those that he himself had persecuted and imprisoned. Those believers that he had apprehended at some point and arrested probably didn't fight back. They probably didn't resist his intimidation and his torture and his apprehension. Maybe it was their unwavering allegiance to Jesus Christ that stuck in Saul's mind. You see, God had goaded Saul a number of times. And it was hard for Saul to kick against those. We don't know for sure what goads God used in Saul's life. But we do know that he was no longer able to resist God's call on his life. Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 10 of chapter 9. There was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Imagine that you're a devoted follower of Jesus Christ living in Damascus. You're living under the constant threat of persecution. You get word and a report that your vicious enemy, Saul of Tarsus, is on his way to your city. And then the Lord speaks to you. And He commands you to go to a house you've never gone to before, owned by a man you've never met before, and the Lord tells you that inside that house you're going to find a blind man praying. But this is not just any ordinary man. Of all people, it was none other than Saul of Tarsus, the dreaded archenemy of every believer in Damascus and throughout the entire region. And you're commanded to touch this man. And when you do, this one-time enemy of believers, this murderer, this torturer, would regain his sight, he would recover from his condition, and ultimately become God's chosen vessel. You can imagine Ananias' response. Look at verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. <laughs> After all, Ananias was a sincere believer, and this was Saul of Tarsus. He killed Christians. How could he possibly, how could he 
possibly be counted on to encounter him face to face. Ananias had no guarantee that Saul had been saved. He didn't have any guarantee. God was calling on him to do something extraordinary. His assignment was filled with risk and uncertainty and even danger. You know, it's possible Ananias may have known some people who'd been killed by Saul. Maybe some of his friends had been orphaned or widowed because of Saul's murderous ways. He may even have known some of Saul's victims personally. And now God wants to use him to go to this man Saul of Tarsus. Look at God's response in verse 15. What does he say? But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, Ananias may have hesitated, but God didn't. He said, go. He chose to use Ananias to begin the transformation of a vicious murder of Christians into a courageous ambassador for Jesus Christ. I am amazed sometimes at the things that God may ask one to do. When you look at the faith of Ananias and compare that to the things that God may be asking you to do or asking me to do, it may seem pretty insignificant. God's plan for you and for me doesn't always make sense. It might seem totally illogical. Lord, how could I? It's too dangerous. It's not going to work out in my favor. Lord, I just don't think I can do it. What other excuses can we think of that we use when God calls on us to do something great? And then I think, as I, every time I read this account of Ananias, I think of the opportunities that you and I miss because we don't do what God wants us to do. Ananias hesitated, but you know what God said? Go thy way. What did Ananias do? Verse 17. Ananias went his way. Don't you like that? What did God say? Go thy way. What did Ananias do? He went his way. What a demonstration of courageous faith. I don't know that my faith is that strong as yours. He trusted God's plan. Even when he didn't understand it. Even when it didn't make any sense. But you know, he was the first believer to extend a touch of grace to this new believer. He even called him brother. Ananias. His name means God 
is gracious. And at that point, I believe Ananias forgave Saul for all that he had done. Had it not been for Ananias' courageous faith, none of this may have transpired. You know, the Saul of Damascus that we later know as Paul the Apostle, (laughs) he may have just remained blind and weak for the rest of his life. But because of the faith of a little-known disciple of Jesus Christ who lived in a city of Damascus and was obedient to what God asked him to do, the transformation of Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul had begun. I think Ananias is one of the Bible's obscure heroes of the faith. I think, I, I think we underestimate Ananias. I think he is a Bible hero. But you know the interesting thing about Ananias? He's never mentioned again anywhere in the pages of Scripture. But we know this, that one single act of obedience affected and influenced and will influence millions upon millions of people through the ministry of Paul and those who follow after him. Do you think it's important that we do what God calls on us to do? Do you think He has a will for us? Do you think that will always seems to make sense? We don't have to make sense of it. We just have to have the faith to believe it and do it. God said, Ananias, go thy way. Ananias went his way. That's how Saul of Tarsus became the great Apostle Paul. And we will see, as as we just did the introduction tonight, we'll see in the weeks to come what mighty things God does through this man, the Apostle Paul. May we have the faith tonight of Ananias. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this great man, little known, not famous. His name is never going to be in marquee lights. But Lord, we know the impact that one man who's obedient to Your will can have in the lives of others. Help us not underestimate, Lord, the importance of obedience to You and Your will. Your will's perfect for us, Lord, even when it doesn't make sense and we don't understand it. Lord, I pray that we'll be like Ananias in our courageous faith and that You will, again, as we've prayed before in this year of 2024, You'll accomplish great things through us if we will only be obedient to You and Your calling and what You would have us to do for Your honor and glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.